reading is Jeremiah chapter 19, verses 1 to 15, and can be found on page 779 in the Red Bibles. We have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back, and page numbers for those are on the screen. So Jeremiah chapter 19, starting from verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Go and buy a clay jar from a potter. Take along some of the elders of the people and of the priests and go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnom, near the entrance of the potsherd gate. There proclaim the words I tell you and say, Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah and people of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Listen, I am going to bring a disaster on this place that will make the ears of everyone who hears it tingle. For they have forsaken me and made this a place of foreign gods. They have burned incense in it to gods that neither they nor their ancestors nor the kings of Judah ever knew. And they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. They have built the high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as offerings to Baal, something I did not command or mention, nor did it enter my mind. So beware, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call this place Topeth, or the valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. In this place, I will ruin the plans of Judah and Jerusalem, I will make them fall by the sword before their enemies, at the hands of those who want to kill them, and I will give their carcasses as food to the birds and the wild animals. I will devastate this city and make it an object of horror and scorn. All who pass by will be appalled and will scoff because of all its wounds. I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and daughters, and they will eat one another's flesh because their enemies will press the siege so hard against them to destroy them. Then break the jar while those who go with you are watching and say to them, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I will smash this nation and this city just as this potter's jar is smashed and cannot be repaired. They will bury the dead in Topeth until there is no more room. This is what I will do to this place and to those who live here, declares the Lord. I will make this city like Topeth. The houses in Jerusalem and those of the kings of Judah will be defiled like this place, Topeth. All the houses where they have burned incense on the roofs to all the starry hosts and poured out drink offerings to other gods. Jeremiah then returned from Topeth, where the Lord had sent him to prophesy, and stood in the court of the Lord's temple and said to all the people, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Listen, I am going to bring on this city and all the villages around it every disaster I pronounced against them, because they were stiff-necked and would not listen to my words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're going to have another reading from Jeremiah in just a moment, but before that, just to break up the readings, we thought it'd be good to attune our hearts and minds, get them on page 780 in the Red Bibles. Uh, There are versions in other languages. They are on the screen. Jeremiah 
Jeremiah chapter 21, starting to read at verse 1. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent him to Pashur, son of Malchijah, and the priest Zephaniah, son of Messiah. They said, inquire now of the Lord for us, and because Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is attacking us. Perhaps the Lord will perform wonders for us as in times past, so that he will withdraw from us. But Jeremiah answered them, Tell Zedekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I am about to turn against you the weapons of war that are in your hands, which you are using to fight the king of Babylon and the Babylonians who are outside the wall besieging you. And I will gather them inside the city. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and with a mighty arm in furious anger and in great wrath. I will strike down those who live in this city, both man and beast, and they will die of a terrible plague. After that, declares the Lord, I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, his officials and the people in this city who survived the plague, sword and famine into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and to their enemies who want to kill them. He will put them to the sword. He will show them no mercy or pity or compassion. Furthermore, tell the people, this is what the Lord says. See, I am setting before you the way of life and the way of death. Whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, famine, or plague. But whoever goes out and surrenders to the Babylonians who are besieging you will live. They will escape with their lives. I have determined to do this city harm and not good, declares the Lord. It will be given into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he will destroy it with fire. Moreover, say to the royal house of Judah, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says to you, house of David. Administer justice every morning. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Or my wrath will break out and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. I am against you, Jerusalem, you who live above this valley on the rocky plateau, declares the Lord. You who say, who can come against us? Who can enter our refuge? I will punish you as your deeds deserve, declares the Lord. I will kindle a fire in your forests that will consume everything around you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, here we are, and we're probably getting used to this by now, that it's not the cheeriest message from Jeremiah. Um, I wanted to start by just mentioning, uh, talking about this man, Louis XIV of France. He very humbly called himself Louis the Great, the Sun King. Famously, at one point, when someone asked him about the state of France, he said, I am the state, modest sort of chap. He lived at a very famous palace called Versailles, a palace, the kind of luxury you've never seen in all your life. And whilst he lived in this extreme luxury, his people generally lived in poverty. And he financed his great palace by being a complete warmonger. Went round Europe in those days, uh, conquering others, taking plunder from their lands to finance his great palace and uh, his great nation that he'd built for himself, Louis the Great. And he reigned for 72 years. 
And I suspect there were some of his enemies at that time who said, why on earth does this warmonger, this tyrant, get such a long reign? If we're believers, I guess it might be one of our questions. Why does God allow seemingly corrupt leaders, tyrants, power-hungry people to reign and reign for a long time? Why does God allow the state of North Korea today to continue its tyranny? Why did he allow Hitler or Stalin or Pol Pot to be in power for as long as they did? It's a real question. It's a serious question. and I I don't propose to give you a perfect or simple answer to that question. It's complicated. But we are in a section of Jeremiah, chapters 18 uh, to to 23. And you'll probably want to have page 778, 779 open uh, if you've closed it. These chapters really is Jeremiah telling us how God deals with nations. If you remember back to chapter 1 when Jeremiah was called, God says, I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to preach to them. And in this section of the book, it's one of the two sections, really, which deals specifically with God's plans for nations, how God deals with different nations and kings and rulers. In particular, it's going to talk about how he's going to deal with the kingdom of Judah, his own people, but there's a more general application to all nations. And can I say, as I've been reading and researching over the last couple of weeks, there is nothing in the rest of the Bible that suggests that God's policy toward nations has changed. But it's, it's important to be clear here that when we're talking today, we're talking about nations, not individuals. Because one of the things I'm going to say is that it is possible for a nation to come under the judgment of God. But that doesn't mean every individual in that nation is under the judgment of God. It's possible to be a Christian, to be one of God's people, and yet, like Jeremiah, to live in a nation at a particular time, at a particular place, that came under God's judgment. Jeremiah was a faithful servant of the Lord, and yet he had to live at a time and in a place under God's judgment. Judgment. So what is God's uh, policy toward the nations? How does he treat the nations? Well, there are three things uh, I think we're going to see. We're actually going to start in chapter 18, where we're going to see that there is a settled policy of a sovereign God. So it's page 778, if you have it there. Chapter 18, and I'm going to read uh, verse 5 to verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said... Can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted... And if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. As we read those, you might spot those key words from the book of Jeremiah of uprooting and planting, of building and tearing down. But what we're seeing here is, is how God deals with nations. And the first thing I want us to notice is that there are two different orders of thing in that picture. Jeremiah is sent to a potter's house and he sees a, a potter, a human there, making a pot of clay. 
And, and the putter and the clay are not on the same level. You know, the pot is just an object. The clay is a person with a, a, a power to shape the clay any way they see fit. And God says, that's what I'm like in comparison to whole nations. Nations are like clay in my hands. I have complete control, complete authority over them. Another way you might want to think of it is, um, have you ever seen a toddler playing with toys? And you can imagine that, what, they've got Captain America and Thor. You know, they're playing a, a, and they're playing a fight between Captain America and Thor with their toy soldiers, their toy um, things. Who's going to win? Well, the answer is, whoever the toddler decides is going to win, right? The toys can't affect the outcome. It's the toddler who decides, because the toddler is a different level of being to the objects. And God says, with him, he can push clay pots around. The way we push clay pots around, the way a toddler can play with his toys, that's how God can control the nations. He's in absolute control over them. Now, the very good news is God doesn't treat the nations exactly like toddlers treat toys. So, you know, if you've ever seen a toddler play, play with toys, you might get a little bit disturbed at this point. Don't, don't worry. God is a good and a just and a sovereign God, and that's good news. But we need to get that clear first. God says, look, I'm on a different order. I'm at a different level to even whole nations. They are under my control completely. And God says a nation can find itself under his judgment. Now, his policy is interesting, isn't it? Because it's clear, on the one hand, if a kingdom repents of its evil, he will build it back up. He will spare it. He will be gracious to it and merciful to it. But if it turns away from his good plans and does evil, they will be judged. And yet, God leaves himself space and leaves room, doesn't he? He doesn't set explicit time frames. And he says, if a nation is doing evil, if at any time he announces that a kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, or destroyed, verse 7, and he warns them, so he gives them a bit of space, but if they repent, then he relents. See, it's a policy God has that just has a bit of wiggle room in it, a bit of space for people, gives them time, is patient. It's a clear policy, but it leaves room for maneuver. And there's loads of examples of this in, in the Bible. You might, one of the most famous is the book of Jonah, isn't it? And there's a wicked and evil nation uh, and the city of Nineveh that's doing great evil. And God warns them, says, I'm going to judge you. But they repent. And so God relents and doesn't bring on that city the disaster that he was going to. And there's another example, if you go back even further to Genesis, when when God's talking to Abraham, he tells him that I'm going to give your descendants this land, but it's going to take 400 years. And he says an interesting thing, because the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God says, I'm going to give the people of the land time. There's a warning out, and they're going to have time. Now, God knows they're not going to mend their ways, but he still has to give them time. Why does God do that? Why does God give space and time for nations to repent and relent? Well, I think it's twofold, because sometimes he knows they will. And when they do, like the city of Nineveh did, it displays God's mercy, his compassion. Remember how Jonah ends as he talks to Jonah and says, should I not have compassion? When you see God give space and time for repentance and to relent, it shows his compassion and his mercy. 
And those occasions where God gives time and space and there is no repentance, it demonstrates his justice. That he is right and good. It's good for the Amorites to be destroyed because the wickedness they did was very, very great. And because God is a good and just God, he can't allow sin to continue forever in his universe. And so you have this settled policy of a sovereign God, how he treats nations. He'll announce judgment, leave space. If there is repentance, he will relent. And if they turn away from him, judgment will fall. Now, we're going to see how this applies to the people of Judah in chapters 19 and 21. But actually, if you read chapters 46 to 51, later on in the book, you see that it applies to all nations. God is in sovereign control of them all, and he has a settled policy for dealing with nations. But we're going to sketch it out in chapters 19 and 21, looking at one specific nation, the nation of Judah, God's own people. How does he deal with them? And we're going to see that also God's policy is the just policy of a good God. So chapter 19, understanding chapter 19, I want you to think of it a bit like a courtroom scene. What Jeremiah is doing in this chapter is he brings the leaders of the people, so um, Verse 1 of chapter 19, this is what the Lord says, go and buy a clay jar from a potter. Now that's interesting, given we've just seen that chapter 18, God uses the potter and the pot as a symbol for nations. So now he takes one clay jar, one nation, wonder which nation it might be. It's going to be the nation of Judah. Take along some of the elders of the people and of the priests, so he's gathering the leaders. Go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnom, it's also known here as the valley of Topheth near the entrance to the potsherd gate and proclaim the words I tell you. And then he announces a word, uh, and you can see in verse 3, it's to the kings. So it's to all the leaders and authorities and rulers of this nation. He brings them to this place. And this valley, this valley of Topheth, this valley of Ben-Hinnom, is an interesting place. In 2 Kings 23, we learn this is a place that used to be a a great uh, idol-worshipping area. There were shrines and altars to Baal and to Asherah. And Josiah, a couple of decades before Jeremiah was preaching there, uh, had taken his army and had desecrated the idols, smashed them, uh, burned bones on them, made them unclean. It was a visible place where the judgment of God on idolatry was brought down. And here's Jeremiah bringing the people to this place. This place where idolatry is judged, where wickedness is judged. In 2 Kings 23, very telling moment. And then God issues his judgments. It's very similar to words of judgment he'd spoken 100 years or so earlier to King Manasseh. Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah and people of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Listen, I'm going to bring a disaster on this place that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. For they have forsaken me. God announces his judgment, and then he brings his charges out. He puts his case together. They've forsaken me. We've seen that when Steve talked to us a couple of weeks ago about idolatry. They've made this a place of foreign gods. That's, that's what this place they were standing in, Topheth, was, a place where the foreign gods were worshipped. They've burned incense in it to gods that neither they nor their ancestors nor the kings of Judah ever knew. And they've filled this place with the blood 
of the innocents. They've built the high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as offerings. Something I did not command or mention, nor did it enter my mind. God makes his case they are idolaters, and it is a nation full of immorality. And then he passes his sentence in verses 7 to 9. He says, well, verse 6 to 9, actually, this place, which was called the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, will now be known as the Valley of Slaughter. Judgment's going to fall. Again, we're familiar with this message from previous weeks. He's going to bring the Babylonians, and there is going to be judgment on his people. And then verses 10 to 13, slightly weird, maybe as we were reading it, there's a final dramatic act. Now, if we're in a courtroom scene, you know that dramatic moment in a courtroom drama where the sentence is passed and the judge brings the gavel down? Well, you might want to think of it a bit like this. Only Jeremiah, verse, verse 10, takes the jar, the clay jar. Remember the clay jar that represents a nation, the nation of Judah. And says to them, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will smash this nation and this city. I was going to bring a clay jar in. But I thought it might not get through health and safety. So you'll just have to imagine. Um, And he smashes it dramatically. So that it's not just words that have been spoken here to the people. They've seen an action. That's what your city's going to be like. That's what's going to happen to you. Now, all these warnings that didn't start with Jeremiah, they'd come long before, had been meant to cause the people to repent. But the tragedy is, look at verse 15. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I'm going to bring on this city and all the villages around it, every disaster I pronounced against them, because they were stiff-necked and would not listen to my words. These people will not repent. Well, what are we to make of this courtroom scene? I want you to see that it's a valid case. The people have rejected God. They have gone after idols. They have been immoral. God's justice is good and right, and his goodness demands that he act. We saw, we saw that a bit last week, so I'm not going to dwell on it. But actually, it's a good thing that God is a God of justice, that he will see sin punished. It's something we should praise him for, actually. I know that doesn't always feel comfortable, because we know there's sin in our hearts. But actually, it's wonderful news that God is a God who will see wrongs righted. I think we can also learn from this passage that there is a link between idolatry and immorality. False worship leads to false living. Bad belief leads to bad behavior. When our hearts go after other things than the true God's, then actually we will start doing all sorts of things which are unwise or unjust or unkind or cruel in order to pursue our false gods. Here we see that idolatry goes with shedding the blood of the innocents. If we ignore God and his rule, well, even Judah couldn't escape his justice. And and therefore, I guess the question is for our nation, do we think we can? Do we think we can ignore God? and his good words, and not pay any price for it. 
We might not worship gods of wood and stone anymore today, but we do worship gods that our own hearts create and imagine for ourselves, don't we? We do go and follow and run after other things that are no good for us. We worship the God of freedom, the God of choice, the God of material possessions. And actually, as we look around our society, we see that those gods are rife. Their temples rise up high as malls and shopping centers, and their priests and prophets in the celebrity world tell us to chase after whatever we want and pay no regard to what anyone else might tell us. Follow your dream. Do what you want to do. But then you might look and say, but shed the blood of the innocent. Burning children in the fire as offerings. That's a bit, we don't see that today. Well, actually, and as I say this, I, I just want to say, I realize this might be a live and sensitive issue for, for some people. And I don't want to be insensitive at all. But actually, can I say, I think our society does have a problem with this. We might not sacrifice children on stone altars to Baal. But in the name of the God of choice, we do kill children. At a rate of about 200,000 a year in this country. Not on stone altars, but in sterilized clinics. Now, I know there are difficult, tricky situations that people find themselves in. And I want you, if you've been in that situation or know someone who has, want you to know that the Lord is full of mercy and compassion. That there is healing and wholeness and forgiveness available in Jesus. I know there are difficult cases. But 200,000 a year abortions in this country. And the stats say about a dozen every year because a 20-week scan reveals that the child has a cleft palate. There are difficult cases, but there are some that are not so difficult, right? False belief, false faith in false gods like choice and freedom can lead us to exactly the kind of immorality that we see in this passage. Let's not think that this is a million miles away. Or think about another topic. Um, uh, our, our pursuit of wealth as a nation means that we are the second largest arms exporter in the world. 39 of the 51 countries ranked non-free, the UK government has sold weapons to. Fueling wars around the country, uh, around the world. Causing bloodshed, misery, mayhem. Maybe there's some time for some national repentance that we need to do. And it should start with the people of God who've heard his word. Maybe there's some repenting we need to do. The just policy of a good God. We need to see that God's judgment when it falls is right and righteous. And finally, we see the shocking policy of a free God. Can I say, I do realize that this is, this is heavy subject matter. <laughs> well done for keeping going through the first half of this series. The series is called Uprooting Sin, Planting Hope. And the point is we need, to, we need to be honest about the darkness so that God's light can shine through brightly. We need to deal seriously with these judgment passages in Jeremiah because then it makes that hope that he offers so precious 
and so necessary that our hearts will long for it. And our final point here about God's policy with the nations, it's a settled policy of a sovereign God, it's the just policy of a good God, it's the shocking policy of a free God. And when I say it's shocking, it doesn't shock God, it shouldn't shock us, but it does. And that's because we, we often put God in a box. We often feel as though if we do X, then God must do Y. We often treat God like a bit of a vending machine. If we pay our little penny of religion, then out will pop a, a good surprise, uh, a nice can of fizzy goodness or whatever it might be that you get from a vending machine. But that's not how God works. So verses 1 and 2 here. The word came to Jeremiah, chapter 21, from the Lord, when King Zedekiah sent to him Pasher, son of Malchijah, and the priest Zephaniah, son of Masiah. They said, inquire now of the Lord for us, because Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is attacking us. Perhaps the Lord will perform wonders for us, as in times past, so that he will withdraw from us. And this is picking up on something that happens in Isaiah, when a foreign nation comes and sieges Jerusalem, and um, Hezekiah, the king at the time, goes to Isaiah and says, pray to the Lord for us, and God rescues them. And so in Zedekiah's mind here, he thinks, well, we just do the same again, right? We just go to Jeremiah, he'll pray to God, the Babylonians will be gone. Boy, was he wrong. Rather than fight for the Israelites, the Judites, against their enemies, look what God says, verse 4, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I'm about to turn against you the weapons of war that are in your hands, which you are using to fight the king of Babylon and the Babylonians. I will gather them inside the city. I'm not going to protect the city, says God. I'm going to bring them in. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm, picking up on the language of Exodus there. And what God's saying is, you can't put me in a box. You can't just assume that I'm going to act in the same way every time according to your agenda. You pick up on the exodus echoes of the mighty hand and the outstretched arm, uh, the way of life and the way of death, but, but, but it's funny, isn't it? Uh, the way of life and the way of uh, death that we see in verse, uh, where are we? Oh, I've missed it completely. Eight, eight verse eight, thank you. <laughs> um, again, back to Moses where the way of life was to follow the Lord into the promised land and the way of death was to go back to Egypt, but now it's flipped around. The way of death is to stay in Jerusalem and the way of life is going to be to go and surrender to Babylon. We can't put God in a box and make him work the same way every time. He's completely free. Sometimes we do think that by coming to church or praying in a certain way, um, or, or if we just do things in a certain way, then God will have to bless us. Um, you might uh, know, I don't know if you know The Simpsons very well, it's probably quite a dated reference now. There is a, an episode of The Simpsons where Homer goes as a missionary uh, to some unreached people group, and they build a church, and they say, wow, Homer says, wow, I don't know much about God, but we sure built a nice cage for him. In our minds... We sometimes think we can trap God in a cage of our religion by doing the right things. If I do X, then God will do Y. If I don't have sex before marriage, then God will have to give me a husband or a wife. 
If I give to the church, then God will have to make me flourish in my career. Well, God's free. And as he's free on the level of individuals, he's free on the level of nations as well. But when we consider our own hearts and the things we go after, isn't it good that the free, just, good God is the one who calls the shots? Isn't it good that God doesn't work according to our logic? Because according to my logic, I would never have sent a perfect, innocent one to die in the place of rebels. We sang, didn't we? I'm not skilled to understand. I, God's, God's mercy and his grace at the cross goes beyond my imagination. We're going we're gonna to think about that as we share the Lord's Supper in just a minute. And as we take and eat that, remember that God is free. Uh, there was no need for Jesus to come and rescue us. It was a free choice. And praise God for the fact that he is the good and just and free God. He's not bound to our will. He is in control and not us. And that means this for nations. No ruler, no kingdom, no nation will ever call the shots with God. It's God who gets to call the shots with them. And as we look around the world, maybe we despair of our own leaders. Maybe we despair of leaders in other parts of the world. (laughs) from time to time, or more regular than that these days, it seems. Maybe we can worry what a state the world is in, but actually, Jeremiah 18 to 23 would remind us there is a higher throne. There is a God who rules the nations. And no king or tyrant of this earth will have the final say. Louis the Great reigned for 72 years. He called himself the Sun King. He ruled over France in a reign that never seemed like it was going to end. He thought himself so great. So great that at his funeral, uh, they had black drapes over the windows in the, in the cathedral in Paris. And they had, it, was, it took place at night, had this long procession march into the cathedral. It was almost pitch black. And the only light in the cathedral was a candle over Louis' coffin, as if to symbolize he was the light of the nation, And every eye should be fixed on him. During the service, the time came for the sermon. And the bishop walked up toward the pulpits, passed the coffin, reached out his hand, snuffed out the candle, walked into the pulpit, and said in a loud voice, Only God is great. Friends, God is the one in ultimate control. All of the nations and kingdoms will one day be uprooted, but there is a king and a kingdom that will last forever. The king that God has established. The Lord Jesus Christ. So which kingdom are you going to live for? Where are you going to spend your time, your effort, your energy, your money? Only one's going to last. And that's the one we should live for. And 
that's good because it's a great kingdom with a great king. I'm sorry I didn't have time to get through it all. Uh, as we see the word to the house of David, this house of David that's become corrupt at the end of chapter 21, administer justice, rescue from the hand of the oppressor. And you think no human king ever does that perfectly, except the one God sends, the one who does administer justice, the one who does rescue, the one who does save. And yet, he's also the one who bore the judgment for us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are the sovereign Lord of the nations. We do thank you that you're in control. We thank you that's good news. We repent of those times when we long to be in control. Help us to see it is far better news that you rule and reign. It is far better news that you've put Jesus on the throne. Help as we see, uh, as we see these difficult passages, Lord, to see your goodness and your grace. Help us to see that you are free. Help us never seek to put you in a box or a cage. But Lord, we pray that we would see that your kingdom is great and glorious, never to be defeated, and it is a good and joyous kingdom. And may we put our hearts and our hopes there. For Jesus' sake, amen.